in Jesus' Name. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. A couple of things real quick before I begin today. Um, uh, wanted to update us. These are praise reports. Update us on our heart for the house giving. So a figure will come up on the screen. So as you'll see, over $127,000 received so far. Yes, I think that is just awesome. It empowers really in a very practical way our sort of uh, footprint in our community and uh, bring on the childcare centre and all our kids workers out there today are probably saying yes and amen. Give us a bit more room, plus that engagement it'll give us with the community. It's very, very exciting. Um, the other thing is, uh, Ben and Claire Oots are here today, I see, with, let me get it right, Millicent Patience Kirby Oots. And she is gorgeous. I was looking at you guys in worship from across there. I take a sneak peek. I don't just go over there to get up here. I go over there to have a look and check out what's going on. And No, I don't. But I just looked across and I thought, I'm, never, I'm always shocked by how small a newborn is. You know, because it doesn't take long before they're running around and breaking your arm trying to hang on to them. And every time I see a newborn, it's like, they really are that small, aren't they? Incredible. So make sure, don't go too close. Give them a wave, blow them a kiss, do something, let them know that you're very, very excited for the Oots family. Cool. I think I'm ready to start. Now, uh, I'm not going to preach today as such. Um, I'm going to continue with what we were doing last week, we had a, a, what we called a question and answer thing, but I'd like to reframe that around question and response because someone highlighted it to me this week and I think it's so true. Uh, you know, what I'm talking about or what I want to talk to you about this today, they're not like pat answers to give people. It's only a response to a question and you can only sort of respond in the moment and sometimes, especially when you're doing stuff live, it's terrifying to be thinking on your feet, responding in the moment. So today I'm going to be stuck to my notes a bit. I have prepared. I'm not going to take questions because we've still got enough for another week if you still want more. We could just go back to preaching. That's okay. But I just, I think, you know, what is this and what are we trying to achieve? It's really discipleship is why we come together. There's a certain amount uh, that we just really want discipleship to occur and it doesn't just occur through you know, through preaching, but it can by comment and maybe introducing some thoughts from Scripture into some of the current things that we face. So you're ready there? You're right to go there? Happy to go there again this week? Honestly, I'll, we'll do, a, we'll do a, 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 a cheer or boo a meter at the end of the thing as to whether we do it for another week because there's still a number of great questions we didn't get to that I think are worth getting to. Um, I want to start with just um, a light-hearted one. Besides the one from last week asking me where I got my hair cut, we got another funny one. Mull Hair & Co. Got one this morning. Didn't cost me a thing. Anyway, um, if you were to write the next testament, you know, the next section of the Bible if there was going to be one, what would it look like or what would you write about? Um, the Newest Testament by Chris Mulhair. I like that. It's got a ring to it. Uh, well, I actually, honestly, I thought about it. I thought I'd really like to clarify some issues around end times and the return of Christ. Number one, Jesus would definitely want to drive a Tirana. 
hey, ask a facetious question, get a facetious answer. No, I don't think it was facetious. In all honesty, to truly answer that, I would say about how letting Jesus transform you will make you more fully human. I, I, for me, I'm just, you know, getting away maybe from some old images that we've had, what sin is as a moral list of do's and don'ts and who's in and who's out, and get back to what the gospel's all about, which is God restoring our original vocation to reflect his image in all that we do to all of creation. I think that is a far more helpful way of understanding what God's wanting to do. In other words, he wants to make us fully human. That's what being redeemed is all about is actually becoming what we were always meant to be. So I think that's what I'd write it about, but I'm not about to write it, just so that you know. So I wasn't sure whether to call this the question series, because this is now two weeks. I thought instead I would just simply call it, you asked for it. You asked for it? Let's go there. Question one. What is the church's stance on LGBTQI? I know everyone just leaned in. Some people breathed out, some people breathed in, some people don't know whether they, they're going to take another breath. I'm going to go straight there and tell you what I really think. I think it's a conversation rather than a soundbite. That's what I really think. I think we do people an injustice if we summarise their lives in, a, in pithy statements. The fact is, as Christians... We don't appreciate it when our world does it about us, do we? When you get labelled, when you get said, well, this is what Christians are like, and you know that's not what you're like. Or when people label our God, this is Jesus, this is the distorted, you know, uh, comic strip Jesus, really, that our world often portrays. We don't appreciate it because we know it's not true and we know they're uninformed. And I think we as God's people need to be very careful about not repeating that mistake in retaliation. As any one of us would know, if you've ever actually had someone in your world that you're close to, that you love, that you actually genuinely care about, that's wrestling with some of those issues, then all of a sudden it takes on a whole different nature and a whole heap of humility comes to your life as you try and walk with someone. And so I think that that's what I think about that. And I'm more than happy to have that conversation. I just have never seen anything particularly good from trying to have it with a microphone standing on a platform. I think that's an across the table and an across the, 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 you know, across a cup of coffee kind of discussion that I'm very, very happy to have. Uh, I'm reminded of this, 1 Peter 2.17, sorry, show proper respect to everyone. And interestingly, then it says, love the family of believers. So Peter actually qualifies everyone and also the church. In other words, he's talking about everyone and then the church. So he's saying you should show proper respect. That is something the church has not always done well to people that don't meet a particular imagination that we have. And, uh, and I think we need to stop that and... Uh, and actually start showing proper respect, because without that, you'll never have a conversation that just could be life-changing. Uh, interestingly, the gravity of that is where uh, I love it, the way that, um, uh, I think this is the Passion Translation, I'm not sure which one it was, I pulled it out of, but fear God, honour the emperor. 
Some versions say the king, but actually the king at that time was the emperor. He was the emperor of Rome, and Peter's saying, honour him. We can't even honour sometimes a Christian prime minister. And so I think we really do need to, if we really want to, you know, stand on the truth and the Bible, and we're all about believing the Bible, okay, well, there's some really good heavy stuff that we can put into practice right now. Want another question? You doing okay? <sighs> okay. Adam's, Adam's smiling, so it must be going okay so far. Okay. Question two. How should Christians handle sickness? Why do we fall sick when we are healed by his stripes? And that's a, a direct quote from Scripture. I think this is a, a, another great question. Mind you, I think the first question was a great question, just by the way. I was very, very happy to answer it. Um, this question, I think, is really, really pertinent because we all live with paradoxes, don't we, in our Christian life? And we believe what Scripture says and we believe that God is good and yet sometimes we don't seem to, to experience it in the now. And that creates an incredible paradox in our life and some people lose faith over that paradox. So 1 Peter 2.24 uh, speaks of Jesus who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now first of all I want to say this I feel tremendous compassion for anyone who's sick and especially if you're suffering with a chronic condition something that recurs or something that you've, you've had to live with, that is really difficult and can take a lot of the joy out of life. So I really, really feel for you. Um, what I do want us to notice, particularly the context of this verse, and I've got no problem applying it to physical healing, but that is not necessarily what Peter's talking about. So I've got no problem applying it to that, but actually Peter's talking about being rescued from the power of sin here. And, um, and that is what God sees as being healed, is that you actually get rescued from everything that's destroying you. One of those things might be physical sickness. That's one of those things. And so is it applicable? Absolutely. We just need to have a more holistic view of it. This is about mental health. This is about um, uh, changed mindsets and actually being able to live a God-honouring, God-glorifying life and make decisions that glorify Him. This is about being healthy in our body. This is about being healthy in our relationships. Sozo, the Greek word for salvation or, or to be saved, literally means to be made whole to be put back together again. And that's what Peter's talking about here. So I think that really it is one element. Another passage puts it this way. I love the way that this, uh, this is the Passion Translation puts it. He himself carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we, could, we would be dead to sin and live for righteousness. Our instant healing flowed from his wounding. That's just absolutely beautiful. But you can also see there, it brings it out that it's broader than just a prayer line for sickness. So here's a response. Uh, like any other suffering, you know, why do Christians suffer with sickness when Jesus heals and I haven't seemed to receive it? I had a, someone inbox me this week that was prayed for in the foyer of church last week, giving praise to God that they got a healing. But I know it doesn't always happen. All I know is the more people we pray for, the more people we see healed. So to me, the key is pray, pray whenever you get the chance and always believe for good things. Because if you don't pray, you're not going to see anything. That simple. But uh, however, like other, any other suffering, it's the reality of the human condition. 
It is the reality of our frailty in a broken world. There's one response. Uh, I think it's a frustrating mystery of faith. Some people are more gifted to deliver healing. They're really gifted to pray for the sick. So some people, you know, when, when they pray, things really happen a lot of the time. And, and it's just a gift. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 would tell us it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Some people are more open to receive. You know, I've met some people and they're like spiritual lightning rod conductors. Uh, if anything's happening in the room, it gets to them first. And I, I don't know that. I don't know why that is, whether it's open heart. I, God, why is this all different? Aren't you glad? It'd be pretty boring, but if it wasn't that way. But, you know, some people are able to receive more. Uh, the greatest healing miracle I've ever been a part of praying for was praying for someone in sheer desperation. I had absolutely no confidence that, that anything was going to happen. And as a matter of fact, we weren't even praying for their healing. That was just what God did on the way to doing other things. And it was like a shock. And I think every time I've seen God do a big healing miracle, it's made me realise how little faith I had for what just happened. Because I'm like, what? Really? Really? No, no, really? Really? It's like, I can't believe it. It actually happened. It's a mystery of faith, the way these things work. But I do know we should pray. It's a tension to manage, not a problem to solve. Being a Christian in a broken world, uh, you are not going to solve that problem. There are going to be paradoxes as long as you live on this planet. So it's a tension to manage more than maybe, and I wish I could give a more definitive answer, but I can't. Welcome to being human is, I guess, what I would have to say. Um, so I think it's a tension to manage. Live with wisdom. Build your life. Believe for the miraculous. Keep the faith. That's, that's my response to it. Um, healings were signs, just as, as a side note, healings were signs so that we would, signs so that we would believe in Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus said, you've seen and believed, blessed are those who do not, have not seen, um, but believe. And it's a little bit out of context in one sense, but it's absolutely totally in context in another. Uh, in one sense, often we'd go, gee, I'd love to be right back in the first century and walking around, following Jesus' footsteps, seeing all that stuff. And yes, I believe he wants to do it by his spirit amongst us now. But Jesus actually said, it's even more blessed when you can believe in spite of not seeing what you really want to see. And often when the Bible says, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. These are some of the blessings that we're not really sure we want to receive. I'd much rather see. I'd much rather receive. But actually, Jesus on those, both of those th quotes are quotes from Jesus. Um, one in Acts and, and one in the Gospels. And, uh, and often we don't really want to receive those kind of blessings. So I'm sorry if it's incomplete, but it's a response. Uh, question three. <clears throat> Why was Job still at home for his eldest son's birthday? Okay, then qualifying it. Job should have been there when the roof came down, killing everyone inside. Children, partners, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Where was Job? I actually found this a fascinating question. I wondered whether Jason Job might have actually asked, but he didn't. Um, a fascinating question. Um, and so I want to read the passage in Job 1 verse 18 to 19. 
While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, so I think it's actually an interesting insight, this question that's posed. Like, where was Job? It's, his, it's the birthday party or, or whatever, you know. The interesting thing is this passage is used by Jehovah's Witnesses to prove that you shouldn't cel- celebrate birthdays. Uh, <laughs> I kid you not. Um, Job sacrificed, and here's the point, Job sacrificed in case one of his children sinned. So it's a little bit like if you get together and party, bad things are going to happen. That's sort of the the kind of thinking. Uh, Here's the shallow answer. Do you want the shallow answer first? I'll answer the the shallow part of it. Um, Birth is actually not in the passage. It wasn't a birthday. It's a generic generic party. Um, So you can make the argument about parties too. But basically it means Job shouldn't necessarily have been there. There's the pat, simple refutation. Who wants the real answer? The real response? The real response? Yeah, come on, Vanessa, thank you. Um, We can stop and go have a coffee if you want. (laughs) No, I've got you there? Okay. Uh, So the better response is, the hint is where the actual book of Job is placed in the scripture, where it sits in in our canon of scripture as, like, for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of established theological thought, it's still in the poetic books. It's in the poetic section. Uh, so it's really interesting. Job is written as a drama or as a play that is to be acted out. Job is actually a screenplay, if you wanted to put it that way. Um, there's, so that's, that's a big hint as to where this story is going and how we should look at this story. Uh, Then there's internal hints in the book itself. God having a face-to-face with Satan. It's a bit of an indicator something unusual is going on. God betting with Satan, with Job's life. God gambling with someone's life. If you believe that's literal, your God is hideous. And our world, who thinks we do read all this literally, do think we're hideous because of it. Okay, and again, first indicator, poetic books. Now, I want to address that before you're like, "Ah, Chris doesn't believe the Bible, let me get there, okay? Um, So, uh, Job being content with his new family. There's another one. All right, you just lost all your old family, but it's okay. After a bit of suffering, God's going to give you a brand newie. And then you see Job, it's like embracing it like a new car. What parent in this room would be happy with that scenario? I know we'd all love our new family, but who would still be devastated? It would sort of take the shine off the new family a bit, but you don't really get that in Job. So there's all these internal indicators that we should take notice of. Um, Does that mean it's not true, Job? You're saying, Chris, it's just a screenplay, it's imagination, it's a made-up story. Does that mean it's not true? No, not at all. Something doesn't have to have happened to be true. The principles and everything that are in it are true. Job is teaching us or helping us understand the place of human suffering. That's why it's written. 
Jesus told this, did this all the time. We call them parables. And it's funny how we let Jesus tell an imaginary story and say it's absolutely true, but we get really uncomfortable when we shuffle into another book of the Bible and someone else does it. And we go, oh, 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 I've got to believe it's absolutely... This is the difference in understanding between reading the Bible literalistically or literally. Okay? Now, I think we should read the Bible literally. But let me describe what that means. To read the Bible literalistically, you're thinking everything in the Bible must, has happened, must have happened as written. And we can prove very, very quickly from the Gospels that that's not true. Okay, um, literally means in Bible speak, it means to read it the way it was written and intended to be read by the author to his audience. That's to take the Bible literally. Some people who say they take the Bible literally actually don't. They confuse genres. They, they you know, ignore historical arcs through the whole curve of the story. They don't see the whole picture through the lens of Jesus Christ, which is what we are meant to do, read all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus. They don't do that, and you can't get Scripture right if you don't do that. So that's the difference between being literal. So I just put it this way, and it's been said well by our friend Shane Willard, everything in the Bible is true, and some of it actually happened. <laughs> I know I'm making some of us older ones nervous there, but honestly, I'm just given a response. Question four. Are you okay? You okay? You're not too shaken up? I totally, I love scripture, I am totally invested, I believe the Bible, and I believe it's true. And I believe to honour it and not to contort, twist, or destroy the word of God, we really have to know how to read it and get a little bit clever about these things. Okay, question four. This is the shortest question. I almost didn't answer it because I thought, hey, bro, not enough info. <laughs> this was the question. Um, anxiety and faith. And then I'm like, actually, that is a really good question. What a pertinent... I'm going to land it here. Is that okay? This is where we're going to, we're going to be over. Um, I just think it's such a relevant topic. So I'm going to say a few things here. I'm going to try and read a lot because I don't really want to get too much of this wrong. Um, definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. That's just a dictionary rendition. There's lots of others, but I think that will suffice. Anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen next, fearing what might or might not happen, being unsure of the outcome brings anxiety. Anxiety is being fearful of something that may or may not happen. I think anxiety's always existed. I think the biggest problem when I look at anxiety, and I am not a psychologist or anything like that, so Danny will be keeping me, he'll be keeping me honest here. Um, but the biggest problem is unidentified anxiety that I see. That people are feeling it, but they don't know why they're feeling it. This anxiousness and, and COVID just threw petrol on a fire that was already raging with this. Um, if you don't know what you fear, it's very hard to address. And sometimes we don't even like to admit that I might be fearing something. Oh, I don't fear anything, I'm just a bit anxious, that's all. And it's like, no, no well, they sort of, they're sort of bedfellows, if you know what I mean. So, um, 
I look at the modern epidemic that we face and so much of it fits in this unidentified category. I can't really work out. It's like non-specific anxiety. And I'm becoming so really convinced that much of general anxiety so many are experiences attached to the biggest confusion and frustration of our generation, which is actually an identity issue. The biggest frustration. And so as a society, and I guess this is my response, just the way I see it. As a society, over many years now, we've flippantly cast off so many values that once upon a time supported the family unit and character development of the individual. You know, we've had decades now of a kind of diminished responsibility generation. Whose fault's that? Well, it's definitely not mine. And this inability to actually go, I'm going to own this so I can change it. The problem is you can't change something if you don't own it. And, um, and I've, even, I've learned that in leadership. Even when the problem's not mine, the problem's still mine. Because if I don't own it, I can't speak to it. I can't lead it. I can't bring healing to it. I can't make the adjustments necessary. So whether I think I'm at fault or not, it doesn't really matter. I've still got to own it if I want to do anything about it. And yet we have had decades and decades now of maybe telling people it's not their fault. And sometimes it isn't. But sometimes people just need to fess up, take responsibility, and sort of uh, move through their issues. Um, Just a bit of my thought, I think entitlement, that's been foisted on generation after generation now. I can remember that being spoken about on talk radio 40 years ago when I was an apprentice and really wondering what it meant. And now I can see what it means, a sense of this world owes me. And we're not going to get much further with that mentality, I think. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of implosion within within communities. Just my thoughts on it. Again, it's just a response, it's not an answer. Once social fabric breaks down, people lose a sense of rooted identity and therefore must find identity in something. And so to me, from gang involvement to gender confusion to wealth creation to social media highlight reels, I see it all has the same root issue and that it's a search to gain identity and find security. And to me, it's all fig leaves. It's exactly what we see in the garden, in that original story. Man trying to cobble together things that are so temporary, that have no real value, to try and cover shame, to try and cover nakedness, etc. Um, interestingly enough, you know, the number one sin for Israel, when you actually read, you know, Israel's probably most poignant passages around their disobedience, their frustration with getting in step with God. You know what the number one sin really is? It's a thing called idolatry that we don't talk about much anymore. And what idolatry is, it's not so much a wooden statue in the corner of a temple. It was for them. But it's actually to worship something within the created order rather than the the creator himself. And it's actually as we worship our creator that we are given identity because that was our original vocation. We were created to reflect his glory to creation and to reflect the glory of creation back to the creator. That is literally our original vocation as human beings. 
So when we worship something down the order, we give it power over us. So if you look at it right now, probably one of the biggest demon gods, if we want to go there, biggest idols of our generation is actually image. Having lost our image, not reflecting the Creator, not knowing who we are, losing identity, we then create identities by worshipping certain things, whether that's money, whether that's how we look on social media, whether that's our sexuality. The list goes on and on and on and on. And I don't think those issues can ever be solved on a surface less le level. So I say even talking about identity issues or sexual issues, the answer is not to make a pithy statement that sums it up. The answer is to introduce people to the image they were created to bear. And then everything can be changed. Let God do the transformation and the changing because when we behold Him, then we begin to move back into original vocation. And at that point, we don't need to tisk tisk and tell people what they should or shouldn't believe or should or shouldn't do. They begin to want to reflect the Creator. I think it's called the gospel. Um, and then I guess once identity is found in Christ, my conviction is we find release from performance mentality and we, we can be set free to become not only secure but fully human. Human beings rather than human doings. So many people are distressed, are worn out, are anxious or whatever and it's like so many mice on a little wheel in a, in a cage so many people are living that. And yet I think Jesus is the answer, absolutely, to release people from that. It's in finding your identity in Him. Faith is all God's looking for. Think about it. I think I said it last week, might have been at night. It was the only thing lost in the garden. Why faith was the only thing lost in the garden when man stepped away and wanted knowledge and to be able to choose what was good. I'll paint what's good. I'll paint what's evil. Leave it to me, God. That's what we basically did. And when people go, well, I didn't do that original sin, I look at our society and go, you're doing a pretty good job now. And I'm frustrated by our world system. I've got to tell you that. Our society at large, at large, is saying, and excuse this crudity, but I'll tell you what, our kids are exposed to it anyway. It's saying women can have penises. And that human children are disposable. That's our society. That's not a judgment. That's a reality. That's not a judgment. That's simply quite incredible to me. Think about our society. It saturates men with porn while campaigning against violence for women. How confused and messed up is that? Feminism, telling girls to do it their own way while letting them be exploited by that same industry. It just pull, you could pull, if I had hair, I would pull it out. And I think we've got to, we've really got to understand that pornographers are the drug cartels of the 21st century. Any of us who can remember the late 80s and the war on drugs and all that messy stuff, uh, there's a new industry in town. And somehow they've actually, they don't even need to grow it. You grow it. And they just harness it and exploit it. The drugs are already resident within us. And um, that is just one of the big difficult issues of our society. The point I'm trying to make is the depth of confusion. That's all. The we shouldn't be surprised. You know, the scripture gives, paints a very clear picture of two kingdoms. 
In the Old Testament, it's called Babylon, this world system, which means confusion, fragmentation and scattering. That's what this world will always do. It will never do any more than confuse, scatter and, and fragment. Um, and what's God's purpose in Christ? In Ephesians, to pull all things, all that scattering, to pull it all back together. So while God's trying to pull it all back together, there's a very real enemy determined to scatter and build his own kingdom amongst it. And so with that level of confusion, they're complex issues. The church, when I talk about the church, I mean us, I mean the church in general, has often been poor at addressing these things. But with indicators like what I've just spoken about, we don't need to ask why there's so much anxiety. Take a look at the world around you and then throw on top war, the energy crisis, climate change, whatever is going on with that. I think the only, only way you can be wrong about climate change is if you're actually sure you know what's going on. <laughs> There's a few things like that the last couple of years. But think about it, it's all pumped up by a media that knows that controversy, bad news and fear sells faster than anything else. And that's what we're living within. What's the answer? To me, it's Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. I'm no longer trying to prove myself. I'm no longer clinging to my rights. Dead men don't have rights. I've surrendered it all. Now Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I love this last phrase. Listen to it. Who loved me and gave himself for me. And I see two things in those phrases. He loved me. In other words, intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. Even when you're a mess. Remember Paul, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Loved me and gave himself for me. Intrinsic value. I don't need the Insta highlight reel to feel like I mean something. I don't need to make the money. I don't need to go searching in all kinds of other destructive areas to try and find my identity. I've actually found it when I surrendered my life to Jesus. Gave himself for me. You've got value, acceptance, identity. If the equation's this, acceptance plus value, it equals identity, which equals lowered anxiety and the ability to cope with external pressure. And I know that this is not a be-all and end-all and there's other things and it's not just some sort of, I'm not trying to use like a Bible cure-all formula or anything. I'm just trying to give a response to what I think is, is like a root issue and potentially a root way forward out of the pain is always going to be found in Jesus. This world is determined to scatter you, to take your emotions, to take your thinking, to take what you think is right or wrong and scramble it. Has anyone else noticed that the price tags have all been swapped around? And God wants to bring your heart back together, your head back together, give you a very, very clear identity where you become secure in yourself and stuff like anxiety, etc., becomes a more manageable issue. On this frail planet, we'll always have it. It's not a shame to have it. It's not a bad... It's just a part of reality. 
but actually finding your identity in Christ can help you come back to centre to me, to be able to manage the external pressures of this world. And they are my responses.